Great to be with you all here this morning. So glad you chose to make faith the place where you've come to gather and worship and learn. Uh, I know there's a bunch of new faces today, and over the next few weeks, we'll probably be welcoming a bunch of new people. So my name is Sam Krager. I'm the outreach pastor here at Faith. Uh, this week, we're going to be just doing a, a quick study in, in one particular passage. Last week, we finished up a study on relationships, and so we spent the summer talking about uh, singleness and parenting and friendships and, uh, and marriage and a bunch of other kind of relationships, core relationships in our life. Uh, if that's the sort of thing that, that sounds interesting to you that you'd like to study, you can find those sermons and all of our past sermons online. You can, you can look up uh, faithmanhattan.org and find all the sermons there. Uh, next week, we'll start a new sermon series that'll go for several weeks, uh, looking at the overall biblical themes of, of creation, fall, and redemption, and I'm uh, real excited about uh, get, getting that started. But this week, we're going to be looking at a particular issue, um, learning from the book of Proverbs. On, uh, on April 23rd, 1910, former President Theodore Roosevelt gave what would become one of, his, uh, one of the most famous speeches of his career to a large crowd of several thousand people gathered in Paris, France. As ministers in court dress, army and navy officers in full uniform, 900 students, and an audience of about 2,000 ticket holders crowded into the University of Paris, Roosevelt called out the cynics who judged, mocked, and looked down on men and women who were trying their best to, to do their best, to work their hardest, and, and better the world simply by doing uh, their, their, their everyday work, even if only in the, in the common kind of inglorious ways that that happens. Roosevelt titled his speech, Citizenship in a republic, but it became more widely known as the man in the arena after a line from one of its most stirring and powerful passages. Roosevelt said, it is not the critic who counts, not the man who points out how the strong man stumbles or where the doer of deeds could have done them better. The credit belongs to the man who was actually in the arena, whose face is marred by dust and sweat and blood, who strives valiantly, who errs, who comes up short again and again because there is no effort without error and shortcoming, but who, actually, who does actually strive to do the deeds, who knows great enthusiasms, the great devotions, who spends himself in a worthy cause, who at the best knows in the end the triumph of high achievement, and who at the worst, if he fails, at least fails while daring greatly." so that his place shall never be with those cold and timid souls who neither know victory nor defeat. I think Roosevelt's words resonate with us and have thus far stood the test of time because they poignantly and plainly address an issue that we have all likely struggled with at one point in our lives or another, and perhaps may even be struggling with today, worrying about the opinions and perceptions and criticisms of other people. And not just worrying about them, but becoming so overly concerned and consumed by what other people think that it begins to negatively impact our understanding of who we are and what we're worth. Our craving for approval and our dread of rejection pulls our, our attention away from what we might think about ourselves and, and what, what we might know is true of ourselves and what we ought to do. And, and more tragically, it pulls our attention away from God and what he says is true of us and what he would have us do and leaves us in the exhausting and disheartening position of asking ourselves, what do people want from me and why doesn't it ever seem to be enough? If you have ever felt this way before, if you've ever felt the pressure to endlessly perform and the burden to meet every expectation of every person that you have ever met, then my hope for you this morning is to be able to help you see that and, and believe that this is not what our good and loving God wants for you. God doesn't want your life to be plagued by what the Bible calls the fear of man. 
God's desire for you is to trust him so deeply and completely that you, you no longer have to look to other people in order to measure up. Instead, you look to our amazing God and, and remember all that he has done for you and, his, and how he is satisfied with you and, and satisfied with his evaluation of you and his approval and, and even at times being understanding and okay with his call toward repentance and, uh, and correction. Our struggles with what other people think about us and, and feel about us, the way they feel about us, is a, a fairly common topic in the Bible. There are many passages that we could look to for wisdom and guidance on this issue, but none stand out so, so clearly or, or for their simplicity or clarity as Proverbs chapter 29, verse 25, which says, The fear of man will prove to be a snare, but whoever trusts in the Lord will be kept safe. The fear of man will prove to be a snare, but whoever trusts in the Lord will be kept safe. Throughout the Bible, the phrase fear of man is used to describe an unhealthy preoccupation with what people think about you, how they talk about you, and the way they feel about you. Now, before we go too much further, I think it's helpful to clarify that this passage does not say that a reputation doesn't matter at all. Elsewhere in the book of Proverbs, we can find that it says a good name is to be chosen rather than great riches and favor is better than silver or gold. And in the New Testament, both Peter and Paul remind us that we should keep our behavior excellent among the Gentiles and have a good reputation with those outside the church so that our witness to the gospel will have a better chance of being welcome in the communities in which we live and with the people that we meet. So having a good reputation is important, but it is not the most important. The danger we're looking at today is what happens when we prioritize our reputation with others so much that the fear of man, this, this preoccupation with what people think about us and how they feel about us, what, they, you know, what they're saying about us, this fear of man dominates our concerns, impacts our decisions, and takes the place of God in our lives. Now, the tricky thing about this struggle with the fear of man is that it's, it's more of a trap than a conscious, intentional decision that we make. My guess is that very few of us wake up in the morning and think to ourselves, I, I just can't wait to obsess over what other people are thinking about me today. <laughs> Proverbs calls the fear of man a snare. It's a relational noose or net hidden along the paths of, our every, of every day and waiting to cinch around our hearts and weigh them down. This trap likely looks different for all of us. For some, perhaps there's a relationship in your past that makes you feel like you have to constantly prove yourself in order to be worthy of love. For others, peer pressure may be your snare. You've got to look the right way, have the right friends, post the right pictures, pick the right Greek house, party with those who party, compete with those who compete, never fail to make the grade or make the team or deliver flawlessly at your place of work every single time. Maybe you've got parents to make proud or in-laws you feel like judge your every move or maybe you feel trapped by a social pressure attached to your job or your gender or some other role. These days, it seems like there's no shortage of professional criticizers and blog writers and social media followers who are all too ready to not only to tell you how you could be doing every better, everything better in your life, but how you should be doing everything better in your life. And everybody agrees that you need to step it up. So these are what the traps look like. But what are some of the dangers? It's important to ask that question because one of the things that we typically do when we feel trapped by expectations, by the expectations of others, is play it off like, like it's no big deal. This can be something small and subtle like laughing at a joke that makes fun of you and, and the only reason you're laughing is because everybody else around you is laughing and you don't want to feel like or be seen as a poor sport. 
Or maybe it's something much bigger, like remaining in an unhealthy relationship because you're afraid of what your family or your friends might say if you sought help or tried to get out. When we fall into the trap of the fear of man and accept it as normal, we often inadvertently justify uh, being treated poorly or treating others poorly or even treating ourselves poorly. And all of that can open the door to making some really dangerous personal, emotional, and spiritual decisions. Let's take a few minutes to to consider what some of those uh, decisions might be. What is it that can happen to us when we get wrapped up and fixated on the opinions of other people? One of the most common dangers associated with the fear of man is making it a priority to please people instead of pleasing God. Making it a priority to, to, to please people, to become a people pleaser instead of pleasing God. Growing up, I was what you might have called a, a pretty stereotypical uh, good church kid. I, I went to all the Bible studies. I never missed a youth group. I volunteered at church as often as I could and, and as frequently as they would let me. And I often over, overheard my people telling my parents what a nice young man I was becoming, which does wonders for your ego at that age. On top of all this, I got pretty good grades. I was a Boy Scout. I earned the rank of Eagle Scout. I, I tried to be someone who could, uh, my friends could always depend on. I never said no to an opportunity to, some, to help somebody in need. And I carried all these traits with me on through high school and on into college, ever committed to doing my best, to being the best person in the eyes of other people. I worked hard to make sure that other people saw I was doing well. I worked hard to make sure that other people liked me and worked hard to make sure that if it was within my power to do so, the people around me were happy. And all the while, I also worked hard to make very sure that nobody ever discovered that I wasn't really sure God liked me and that I wasn't really sure what I thought about him and that I was suffering from trying to hide a bunch of sin in my life. I knew I wanted a better relationship with God, and I knew that I needed to seek him and seek forgiveness for all these sins that I was struggling with, but I also knew that I wasn't going to be able to do that alone and that I would have to tell other people about what was going on in my life, and and I was afraid that if I told other people, they would become unhappy with me. And, and for years and years, this fear of disappointing people, my, my friends, my family, my parents, my pastors, this, this fear outweighed my fear of disappointing God. Somewhere in my mind and in my heart, I had convinced myself that as long as the people around me were happy with who they thought I was, then I could work on my relationship with God and these issues I was struggling with sometime later. Fellow people pleasers, listen up, because this is the truth. Later never comes on its own. As long as your priority remains to please people, then your relationship with God will struggle. In his letter to the Galatians, the Apostle Paul delivers a startling warning to believers who are tempted by the desire to prioritize people over seeking God. In Galatians chapter 1, verse 10, it says, For am I now seeking the approval of man or of God? Or am I trying to please man? If I were still trying to please man, I would not be a servant of Christ. When we're dealing with the dangers of the fear of man, the stakes could not be higher. Our unhealthy preoccupation with the, what people think about us, what they're going to say about us, what they, how they, the way they feel about us, it does serious damage to our relationship with the Lord. In her book, Fear and Faith, Trilla Nubel makes this clear when she writes, Tragically, you and I deny Christ every time we care more about what others think of us than what God has already declared. 
Every time we seek man's approval and praise, we say to the Lord that his sacrifice is not enough. That's the real danger of people-pleasing. Every time we seek someone's approval and praise over God's, we tell Jesus that his life and his death and his resurrection were not enough and that we need something more from somebody else. But this is not the only danger related to our fear of man. In addition to people pleasing, our unhealthy preoccupation with what other people are going to say about us and think about us can lead us to commit our lives to the pursuit of our own glory and our own gain. The truth is, we wouldn't worry about what other people think if we didn't believe there was something to be gained by doing so. And if we're being honest, there is a payoff to the fear of man. You can try to gain a little bit of tiny, meaningless, temporal, mortal glory. It'll feel great for about the 15 minutes or the 15 years even that you have it. But ultimately and eternally, it cannot satisfy you and it cannot save you. And choosing your own glory will always leave you on the wrong side of redemptive history. In the Gospel of John, chapter 12, Jesus enters the city of Jerusalem with great excitement and great fanfare. He settles in and he begins to teach anyone who will come to him, Jews and Greeks, rich and poor. All the while, he's performing miracles, the likes of which the world has never seen. And, and as, as he's doing this, some people start to think, you know, it starts to dawn on him, maybe this guy really is who he says he is. Maybe he really is the Son of God. Maybe he really is the Messiah. And they get really, really close to deciding to believe in Jesus. But when they get to that threshold, they decide, you know what? It's not worth the cost. In John chapter 12, verse 42, it says, Nevertheless, <clears throat> nevertheless many, even, many, even of the authorities, believed in him. But for the fear of the Pharisees, they did not confess it, so that they would not be put out of the synagogue. For they loved the glory that comes from man more than the glory that comes from God. Love for the glory of man destroys your chance at a rich, full, and glorious relationship with God. You can't have both, but you do have a choice. You can choose between the infinite glory of God and the finite, fickle glory that comes from the praise of people. If all you want is cheap praise from someone who could just as easily be your number one fan today and your enemy tomorrow, God will say, all right, you can pursue that. But if you want to pursue the glorious one who will never leave you or forsake you, then you have to stop chasing what people have to offer and start working on the one thing that can actually help you resist this this fear of man. And Proverbs says that's actively and intentionally building trust with God. Actively and intentionally building trust with God, having a healthy preoccupation with what he says about you, with what how he thinks of you, what he's declared to be true for you. The fear of man will prove to be a snare, but whoever trusts in the Lord will be kept safe. The fear of man will prove to be a snare, but whoever trusts in the Lord will be kept safe. Isn't it interesting that the author of Proverbs does not say that the remedy to the fear of man is found within ourselves? Fighting back against our obsession with how people think about us, what they're going to say about us, it doesn't actually have a whole lot to do with us at least not in the way that the world would have us believe. Just be yourself or improve yourself or even change yourself might be our culture's solution to winning people over and maintaining a reputation, but God has an altogether different approach that he'd like you to consider. Don't focus on other people and don't even really focus on yourself. Focus on the Lord and trust in the Lord, who he is, what he's promised, what he's done for you, and what he says to be true of you, and rest 
easy in his safety and his presence and his peace instead of trying to create all that on your own. <clears throat> this summer, my wife and I took a vacation to Chicago. <clears throat> and while we were there, we checked out the view from the, the 103rd floor of the Willis Tower. Um, or if you're a traditionalist and want to say the Sears Tower, that's, that's okay too. And the view from uh, 1,353 feet is really pretty amazing, but that's not the Willis Tower's greatest attraction. Once you're up there, you can walk out onto something called the Sky Deck. It's an all-glass room that extends four and a half feet out from the side of the building, meaning that you can stand 1,353 feet above the streets of Chicago with nothing but a couple inches of glass beneath your shoes. Did we try it? You bet we did. Should pop up here. Uh, and be honest, it's a little intimidating. Yeah, see, there we are. That's my wife and that's me reading. Uh, it, to be honest, it's a little intimidating to step out there and, see, and, and be standing on that see-through ledge. And I had to psych myself up a little bit to get this done. So I walked to the edge where the steel of the building meets the, meets the glass of the sky deck. And I thought, okay, you know, you can do this because you're at least kind of a brave person and you really aren't afraid of heights. So, so go ahead and step on out there. My feet didn't move. So I thought, okay, not only are, are you really not afraid of heights, but, you know, you've come up here and everyone's going to know, you know, their pictures are going to be posted. People know you're going to the Willis Tower. So if you come all the way up to the 103rd floor and don't step out there, everyone's going to know that you chickened out. So, so go ahead and save face and, and step on out there. That didn't do it either. So I said, all right, well, the, I finally reasoned the chances of this glass floor breaking from underneath me have got to be pretty slim. It was designed by super smart architects and engineers and, and built by expert craftsmen. And I'll bet it's even been ins inspected by people with fancy licenses that say they're allowed to do that sort of thing. And, and they're not going to allow people to step out here if they really think it's dangerous. So, so go ahead and just, just go on out. Trust them. Go ahead and trust them. And that finally got my feet to move and step out onto the glass. And after a brief wave of vertigo, I finally enjoyed the rest of my time standing and leaning and yes, even sitting and reading while suspended 103 floors in the air. And all it took was a little bit of an effort to remember and have a little bit of confidence in the people that created the sky deck, who I trusted to know a lot more than I did when it comes to preventing glass rooms from plummeting off the side of buildings. Rehearsing and remembering why we trust, who we trust, can be a really great way to, to hold on to that trust in the moments that we need it the most. And, and it worked for me in Chicago, and I think doing a similar kind of thing can work for us when it comes to God and needing to trust him instead of people. So what has God promised you? And how has he proven himself faithful to those promises? Join me for a moment in just looking at some scripture, just, just a couple, and remembering the power and the faithfulness of God. In Exodus chapter 14, it says, And Moses said to the people, Fear not, stand firm, and see the salvation of the Lord, which he will work for you today. The Lord will fight for you. You have only to be silent. In Deuteronomy chapter 31, it says, Be strong and courageous. Do not fear or be in dread of them, for it is the Lord your God who goes with you. He will not leave you or forsake you. And in, in Psalm, uh, Psalm 118, it says, out of my distress, I called on the Lord and the Lord answered me and set me free. The Lord is on my side. I will not fear. What can man do to me? The Lord is on my side as my helper. I shall look in triumph on those who hate me. And finally, in John 3:16, it says, for God so loved the world that he gave his only son that whoever believes in him should not perish, but have eternal life. For God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but in order that the world might be saved through him. 
Why is it that whoever trusts in the Lord will be kept safe? Because all of this and so much more is the power and the might and the love and the promise of God and all of it, everything he is, is for you. God says that you are loved and that you are worthy and that you may have at one time been an enemy and a sinner, but now in Christ you are his child and his heir to the kingdom of God and his beloved son or his beloved daughter. This past week, I was reading James chapter 1 with my life group, and I I came across something that that I thought was really amazing. It's in chapter 1, verse 18, where it says, Of his own will, of God's own will, he brought us forth by the word of truth that we should be a kind of first fruits fruits of his creation. So just because he wanted to, the, the reason the Bible gives us that God decided to create us and save us is just because he wanted to, God saved us and remade us into something he considers to be the very best of his creation. And, and God has made some pretty amazing things, right? He's made the Kanza Prairie and the Rocky Mountains, fields full of flowers and sunrises and sunsets and, and elephants and whales. And, and you guys, God's responsible for the creation of dogs. Like, dogs are really awesome. And yet, it, the Bible still tells us that the best of his creation is you and me. That's why the psalmist can ask, with no fear and total joy in his heart, I've got God on my side. What can man do to me? Like any other relationship, building trust requires some work. You've got to be able to put some effort into it. The good news is is that you can start really small and that even a little bit of trust can go a long way. So this week, I encourage you to to do some of the following. Pick one or or if you're super ambitious, maybe you can try them all. Uh, First is spend some time reflecting on how God has been faithful in your life. We can cruise through as many passages as possible and look at it all, but few things are as powerful as really looking back on your own life and, and seeing where God has shown up for you. So what has he saved you from? What has he blessed you with? When have you felt his presence and his love, and what has it meant for you in those times where you could really connect with him? Second thing is pick a passage of scripture that reminds you of the faithfulness of God and, and see about committing it to memory. I know Bible memorization isn't for everybody. For some people, that's just not how your brain works, and, and that's okay. Uh, another thing you can do is, is just write it on a note card or a post-it and, and put it somewhere where you're going to see it every day and, and read it and think about it. I know that sounds super basic, uh, but it can really be a boost uh, to, to your trust and to how much you, you really think about God throughout your day if you just put his words in front of you. And finally, I, I would say if you struggle with either people-pleasing or, or glory-chasing, you got to tell somebody about it. You, you got to find somebody and, and, and just can confess that to them and start working through that. Don't be like me and, and try to bottle it up and, and keep it away from everybody. Trust that God has put people in your life who, instead of judging you for those things, uh, are far more interested in loving you and, and coming alongside you in those moments. You can find one of the pastors if you want to or, or pick somebody from a life group or a friend or a mentor, whoever it is. Don't, don't keep that struggle locked up inside and try to handle it on your own. Build up trust in God. Remember what he has done for you. Remember and dwell on what he says is true about you. And I believe that you will find yourself craving and needing the approval of people less and less and delighting in the approval of God more and more. Would you please pray with me? Heavenly Father, we, uh, we praise you and thank you this morning for your faithfulness for your faithfulness, Lord, and for your love. By your faithfulness, all promises are kept. And and by your love, all fear is cast out from our hearts. Help us remember all the ways that you have blessed us and all the things that you have done for us. What an incredible gift 
it is to have no need to measure our worth by the opinions of other people, but instead to know our worth by how much you love us. Thank you, Lord, for that gift, that deliverance, that truth. And it is in Christ's name that we pray these things today. Amen.